Welcome back to another week of Schizophrenic Reads, the podcast. This week, I'm joined by Taylor Lorenz, the author of Extremely Online, the untold story of fame, influence, and power on the internet. Taylor, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I had originally thought of introducing you as, you know, like your proper titles. Um, you know, you're a journalist, which uh, you have um, done so much incredible work that I've read over the years. And then I also was going to give you like the title of uh, occasional Twitter trending topic, uh, just because <laughs> uh, I think you've, especially in the last couple of years, you've definitely like had a claim to fame over just being like the number one topic trending on the like on on Twitter. Yeah, I know it's usually when Elon is yelling about me or one of those other people that doesn't like me. I have to think that's such like just a weird phenomenon that you're just like probably in your apartment trying to like write an article on, you know, an influencer or something. And then suddenly uh, I'm sure your just notifications go absolutely insane. Yeah, I mute all notifications to mutuals only on Twitter because otherwise it's too chaotic. And yeah, I usually start getting texts of people like, why are you trending? <laughs> yeah. I saw it. Um, yeah. I did kind of want to ask, this is like, this is not really about the book, but what is your, uh, what is your like internet usage like? Like every week I, I have an iPhone. So I get this like report every Sunday morning, like, oh, you were on your phone for eight hours a day. Like as, as a journalist of the internet and as someone that's consuming a lot of content, you know, what's your, what's your screen time? Like if you, if you don't mind sharing this, you know, corporate secret. Oh, yeah. Um, it's scary. Um, <laughs> it looks like I'm averaging 12 hours and seven minutes. <laughs> there you go. Wow. Um, yeah. I've I would just say you're doing lot. really good work. You know, like it's, I, that's, you're dedicated to the job, I think. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I, I mean, I spend a lot of time on my phone because I write about online culture and I, I, yeah. <laughs> it's a lot. I definitely need to log off a little bit more often, but it is what it is. With the book Extremely Online, you kind of take us through the story of the social internet, not specifically like just how the internet started, but how like the social parts of the internet are. And you like, we really start the story back with like the blog like zone. And I think the second chapter or the third chapter was on um, mommy blogs, which I found like a really fascinating thing because I was born in 92. And so my like very earliest memories of the internet were mostly like spending late elementary school on like Yahoo Instant Messenger. So I I, I didn't get to experience some of the like the blogging uh, time during the internet, even though blogging has continued on. Was there part of like researching this old internet, if you will, or internet version 1.0? Was there any parts that like were really like mind blowing for you to like dive deep into some of these stories? Because you give so many really niche uh, stories, especially from like the early stages of the internet that I found so absolutely fascinating. Yeah, thank you. Uh, it was, yeah, it was really interesting. I'm also a millennial and I like, I feel like I was around for the, that era, but obviously I was in school. So I wasn't really paying attention to the mommy bloggers uh, as like a teen. <laughs> um, and so it was really interesting to kind of like revisit that history and talk to all these women. Cause I think we think of like influencer culture, content creator culture as something that's very like Gen Z or even millennial. And in fact, it was these like Gen X mothers that mm -hmm. sort of started a lot of it in the early aughts. Well, and also during that time period, it was like there was like this growth and you get into it in the book, but there was this growth of like, I mean, kind of trying to monetize, but really like this is where I, people situated on on these blog websites that, that gained like really massive followers in, an, in a way that sort of, I, would you say it kind of like conflicted with major media where there were 
there were some aggregate blog posts, but there were some people writing blog posts that kind of were, you know, almost as big as some of like the major news networks in some way, you know, maybe not by viewership, but by reach in some capacity by, you know. Definitely by, I I would say definitely by reach and and readers. I mean, look, more people were reading blogs on the internet. I think more people were getting news from the blogs online. I mean, it's hard to compare because when you talk about traditional media, obviously there's local media, which a lot of blogs surpassed and then national media, which they didn't always surpass just because that was always, you know, that was, they still remain so huge, but, um, but they began to have a bigger and bigger ecosystem because they were forcing traditional media to change. So the mommy bloggers, for instance, like, you know, they really forced traditional women's media to adopt a lot more sort of like feminist language and talk about these tough things. Like the, what the mommy bloggers did is normalize a lot of um, frank discussions about parenthood and sort of struggling to breastfeed or hating your husband or postpartum depression. Like, these were things that were never really talked about in any meaningful way in traditional women's media. And when these moms started blogging about it, the old school sort of women's magazines had to evolve. There was a touching point in the, the story in which you got in, got kind of got into when the mommy bloggers became really big, they started acquiring, you know, some sponsored posts and things, and they would want to write in their like typical tone of voice and like just describe life as they perceived it and as they lived it. And uh, this kind of became this, like, I think probably one of the first confrontations with advertisers being like, oh, no, we can't, we can't sponsor posts if they are like genuine and from a real person. Like we need to like, I, I mean, it's probably always existed. I mean, like, you know, in, in TV and, and movies and stuff, but on the internet, it seems like maybe like one of the first moments where advertisers, you know, if you just, you know, were a little too real, they really didn't like that. Yeah, they were really excited to work with this new class of people, which is content creators. And then they very quickly realized that like, oh, this is not traditional advertising and we have a lot less control. And so then throughout the 2010s, you saw them sort of try to exert more and more control. And there's still that sort of tension today between the advertiser and the content creator. Well, that's one of the things I found so fascinating was this, the constant confrontation between uh, kind of big tech, but big advertisement, really. And then the influencer, like the, there's, there's kind of these competing narratives that are consistently happening. I mean, <laughs> one of the things you kind of allude to is like one of the very first big influencers on the internet, which I was like astounded when I read this. And uh, I'm going to make a video on it very soon. <laughs> um, but oh, yeah. was Tila Tequila was like, like, she kind of made the name for MySpace at some point. Yeah, Tila Tequila was a huge phenomenon um, in the early aughts. She became really famous on MySpace. She was actually really popular on Friendster first, and they kept shutting down her accounts. MySpace was like, come over here. Uh, and yeah, she blew up. I mean, it resulted in her reality show. It was Tila Tequila shot at love. Um, she was really influential back then and and parlayed it into success. I, unfortunately, she went down kind of a really dark path. Ultimately, mm-hmm. I think couldn't handle the fame and um, you know, is now a radical, kind of got into a lot of like radical extremist, right-wing extremist beliefs. She was last pictured doing the Nazi salute. Yeah, it's, I mean, I'm sure there's quite a few, I mean, we still have, you know, stories like that coming out. I mean, like Milo Yiannopoulos had, you know, has recently disappeared from news after being, you know, the right-wing talking head for a while. And those stories just repeat, but there is this 
I don't know, this general trend, like as we we move from social media to social media, like we go from Friendster to MySpace to Facebook to, you know, Instagram to TikTok, you know, like they just keep progressing. And something that I found really interesting, especially as we hit like the two thirds mark in the book is all the same players from the previous platform tend to be the big players for the next one. Like they, in ways that like the big MySpace people, like the scene kids that you talk about, um, they've kind of disappeared in some sense or, or it's been a wild transition, but like you talk about Logan and Jake Paul and, and they kind of fit in the chapters of several social media growths. And I like, I mean, maybe do you just see it's like, I don't know, maybe someone gets kind of the taste of fame or they've just kind of algorithmically figured out how to do it. But it seems like, I don't know, I've watched it happen, especially even amongst like book people. It's like someone gets big enough, then it's it's on to the next platform. It's on to the next one that either can make you more money or give you more reach or make you more, I don't know, credible in some sense. Like this just continues to happen. Yeah. I mean, I think one thing you see, especially when Vine started to falter um, in the mid 2010s, you saw creators realize like they can't be single platform creators. They have to be multi-platform because otherwise you're building your whole business on like one shaky foundation. And we all know like what any of these platforms can change their algorithm or, um, you know, start prioritizing different content or update the app in a, in a way. And um, you lose your ability to connect with your audience. So um, yeah, I think, I mean, Logan and Jake are an example of these creators that have kind of like carried on. I mean, Jeffree Star is another one. Mm-hmm. He would not talk to me for my book, but he's mentioned it in a little bit. Um, you know, he's such an interesting case too, because he was birthed out of MySpace and has then become very popular on YouTube and obviously it's TikTok now. And so there are these figures, I think, that are just very adept at riding the waves of different platforms and you see that those ultimately are some of the most successful content creators mm. did you talk to many of the influencers uh i mean i I, oh, yeah. I could have really paid attention and saw exactly which ones were quoted directly from conversations with you but did you talk to some of the you know some of the bigger creators during the writing process for this one absolutely yeah i mean i talked to i mean i talked to so many that aren't quoted just who spoke on background or there was so much more too that that got. I mean, the book was originally twice as long. Um, there was so much more. I wish I could have. <laughs> I would have. It. I would have consumed it all. Like I, I, oh I if you would have wrote six hundred <laughs> pages, I we would have just had to have a two hour conversation instead of a one hour conversation. <laughs> I think no one would want to buy the book, but um, but yeah, I mean, I originally had like a whole extra chapter on beauty vloggers and a lot mm. more about like kind of some of these online communities too that popped up around the creators. Um. But yeah, I mean, I talked to over around, I think it was end up being a little over um, 600 people for this book. Um, and yeah, I talked to some of the biggest content creators on the planet from, you know, the people that are quoted. I mean, obviously, like Andrew Batchelor, um, who, who also a huge Vine star who now has like a Netflix deal, um, or he had a Netflix deal. I don't know if he's still doing it now. It's the strike. But um, there's a lot of Vine stars quoted. I mean, I talked to like every single big Vine star. And then I talked to other big content creators that have quit the internet or that are still involved in the internet. It's, I don't know. I'm trying to think of what chapter, but, um, but yeah, I mean, that's what I do all day for my job. So (laughs) yeah, there's also, I think there's just this weirdness with, you know, when the internet, like the social internet really started, there were in some sense, a, a handful of big names. Like you talk about, um, the Drudge Report, which was this early political blog, which funnily enough, 
um, during my high school history class, we had to read the Drudge Report as like our weekly reading. Oh that like that was our basically our textbook in high school. I oh went to God. like a <laughs> private Christian school, so obviously you know the the education was top tier and not <laughs> super <laughs> polarizing. Um, but like yeah, during that part of the internet, especially you know early two thousands, you could name a lot of the big names on social media. And now we've just gotten to a point where. I mean, I'll be scrolling TikTok and I'll be like, oh, I wonder who this is. And I'll click on their profile and they have 14 million followers. And I was like, I've literally, I've never heard of you before. And so we're just getting to this point where there's so many famous people, but that so much of society is not aware of in any sense. Yeah, there's no, I mean, what <clears throat> what the rise of this content creator ecosystem has meant in terms of disrupting media and entertainment is there's no like mass culture anymore. There's no mass Mm -hmm. media. Like, you know, it's kind of what happened to like television where you, in the fifties and sixties, you had like, I think it was like five TV channels, you know? (laughs) And then now of course we have hundreds. And so it's hard to, you know, people, the big names don't appear anymore. People like Barbara Walters or whoever, you know, um, I can't even think of, Dan Rather, I think is his name. Mm-hmm. There's, I don't know, these old school people that like used to be on the nightly news. Like now you probably don't know most journalists that are on the news because yeah. there's so many of them. So the same thing has happened with the internet. I think that we are in this hyper-connected world and there's just a lot more niches and there's no way to, yeah. Well, it's know. certainly become like social media has just become more algorithmically driven. Like I mean, the idea of TikTok existing, I mean, I'm not even talking about like the technological advances of watching videos on your phone, but like the algorithm that shows you the thing. I mean, I remember back in, when was it that, you know, I don't know an exact date for it, but like Facebook started you showing you your newsfeed in a non-chronological order and people lost their fucking minds. Like they were like, I no longer have any idea what's going on now. And now every social media is just a wash of just whatever some non-sentient thing wants to show you. Yes. Uh, Yeah. I think we're increasingly living in a very algorithmically driven social media landscape. And a lot of that is thanks to TikTok. I want to kind of get, uh, we're going to go back to the book. Uh, We're going to have so many topics to talk about, but something that like I've really been thinking about since reading your book and since finishing it was kind of like the future. And we've had uh, obviously all of these like public discussions of a ban on TikTok uh, has, has been kind of in the, like the political sphere for like a few months now, like pretty, pretty openly. I mean, where are you kind of, are you seeing any kind of trajectory that you want to speak on? Or is there anything that you're, you're seeing kind of with legislative or maybe just cultural, I don't know, I think maybe the backlash against TikTok as a platform? Yeah, I mean, a huge amount of it is driven by Facebook and Google. I mean, yeah. there's a reason that we have this tech monopoly where nobody can compete with Facebook and Google in any meaningful way. And the only platform that has even remotely begun to compete with with Meta and Google is TikTok, which is owned by this other billion-dollar, multi-billion-dollar you know, tech conglomerate that, for instance, could spend, they spent $1 billion in marketing alone in 2019 just to try to get traction on the app because of course Instagram launched reels, YouTube runs shorts, like they've gone after TikTok so aggressively. And as I reported um in the Washington Post just last year, you know, Facebook has hired these sort of sneaky um Republican lobbying firms to seed fake stories about TikTok in the news and sort of you know, sow moral panic about the app and 
there's just absolutely no evidence for 99. I, I want to say almost 100% of what they claim. I mean, definitely. Yeah. I mean, it's just, there's so much misinformation about TikTok and I think TikTok has a real PR problem. Um, yeah. Because we're not India and we're not China and we're not these like authoritarian places where like the government controls the app store. And I think a lot of people in certain political ideologies wish that was the case. But, you know, TikTok is not even remotely the only only Chinese app. And if you're worried about Chinese influence on our entertainment ecosystem, look at China's influence in Hollywood. Look at China's influence in the fact that they own major stakes in a lot of the gaming, the most popular gaming companies, which, by the way, harvest huge amounts of data on their users, you know, and kids spend hours with the, you know, playing these games. Yeah. It's astounding to me, like, especially like movie, like the Marvel cinematic universe basically has to film their movies in order to be shown to China and like order to get as much box office as possible. And we don't talk about that, like as a culture of like, oh, we need to be skeptical of Chinese, like influence on, you know, the box office of Hollywood. But like when it comes to an app, especially that teenagers love, it's you're like, let's just ban it, you know? It's like- well, it's because I mean, let's look like this is an app that has been leveraged by young people mm-hmm. for, you know, to speak truth to power and to, you know, conduct a lot of activism. And there are political factions, especially the the right wing of this country that does not want those people to have power. And I think that's a huge part of it. Do you think I mean, kind of like the the way that I see it and maybe you would want to, you know, mm-hmm correct me in some sense, but the, uh, the two most, I think like politically driven apps in my mind, especially like in the, like the recent history, um, at least in the United States would be, uh, Twitter's just ability to get like information out there. And then TikTok, um, has just like grown and grown, especially from a political base that is ill-defined in the American consciousness of like the younger, especially Gen Z, like potential voters out there. And it really seems like there's just so much talk of both of these things, while Facebook at the same time is playing around in other countries' fight for freedom. And we basically have, we have almost no public discussions on censoring or doing anything to Facebook. They're just allowed to do whatever they want. Exactly. Well, uh, every single thing that Facebook has accused TikTok of doing, they have done. Oh, yeah. Right? Being irresponsible with data, you know, not illegally, but, you know, wrongly harvesting, I guess, like misleadingly harvesting, like user data and using it for nefarious purposes. Facebook has done that. Interfering in elections. Facebook has done that. Like, you know, Facebook has spurred genocide in in certain parts of the world. I mean, and this is all reported. This is not like, oh, some say like this is (laughs) factual reporting, like backed up, like all of Facebook's atrocities around the world and meta, whatever you want to call it. And, um, and the stuff against TikTok is just so highly speculative. Like, I'm not a huge TikTok booster. I think that it has huge problems with the app, and there's definitely issues with it. But let's be serious, please. And if China wanted our data, they could get it from a third-party Facebook vendor because we have no data <laughs> privacy in this country. Well, I mean, and someone's so, out you know, there selling it. Like, I mean, you can, you can, anyone, anyone across the world can buy <laughs> most of the data. But it's also like this. It's so it's such a farce for Facebook and Google to suddenly care about data privacy because if they actually cared about data privacy and protecting our data from getting in the hands of China and other sort of nefarious countries, or um, or not nefarious countries, but like you know countries that are our political adversaries, they would be backing comprehensive data privacy reform. And they will never do that because it's ultimately against their business model. So I think so much of it is just about Facebook and Google trying to take out a competitor. And these political 
these politicians that some many of them own Facebook stock and have vested interests in the companies that they are in charge of regulating. So, yeah, it's crazy. Going back specifically to the book, uh, and I, we're going to just dance around because I think these I, all of these topics are things that people think about like, kind of all the time. We're just inundated with the social media culture. There was something I was kind of thinking about, and it was it was that like there's this. I don't know. There's these three trends that I kind of see with like the title of influencer. Like when influencers started becoming, I think, a, a prominent title in some sense, like it, it kind of grew into culture. There was definitely a part of where people were just like influencer, like, wh- what are you talking about? And then influencer almost very quickly became a like derided or completely uh, cast aside kind of title, like where people were like, that's not that's not a real thing people do. Like it wasn't even or if they do it, they're like a bad person or whatever. And now like influencer is a seemingly kind of respected career and so much that I it goes around every, you know, every couple months, there's a new article that's like, oh, kids these days want to become influencers more than they want to become, you know, astronauts or something like of that. Course so- they do. Of course they do, by <laughs> the way. Of course they do. There's no opportunity in America for astronauts and there's an enormous <laughs> opportunity in America right. for influencers. So, Well, yeah, there are definitely more uh, influencers making a living than there are astronauts making a living. Like that's, it's, it's astounding that <laughs> we as a culture are confused, but there's, yeah, there's just been the growth obviously of the influencer, the, the in- influencer industry or influencer market that so many people are now either receiving all of their, you know, like this is their full-time job or it's like a good side hustle. And it's just kind of folded into like a normal part of culture. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's kind of what my book talks about is this radical shift that's happened over the past 25 years, um, you know, leading to this new media ecosystem that is dominated by influencers. And I think if you you know, I think a lot of the initial backlash to influencers is just misogyny. And I kind of Mm. talk about that in the book is like, this is an industry, a half a trillion dollar industry that was built and pioneered by women. And I think that's the reason, you know, when you scratch the surface and say, well, why was influencers such a dirty word? You know, people usually say, oh, it's just like women taking selfies and they're narcissistic. And it's all these stereotypes that that, that actually are not based in reality. I mean, these women content creators are running their own media companies and, and, um, you know, doing incredible things and often working outside the bounds of traditional media, forcing traditional media to be better, you know, like the mommy bloggers um, or what the beauty vloggers did in terms of forcing the makeup industry to, to, um, cater towards women of color. You know, there's just so many examples of women kind of seizing power through the internet and the media, the traditional media, you know, sort of inciting a backlash against that. I mean, I see it literally every day. I'm part of, you know, book talk and it is a largely female driven space online that I have become a little voice in, but like it is, it is, you know, 90% women. And you actually, you do give a little mention to book talk, uh, during the, uh, (laughs) during the later part of the book. And I was like, I, I saw the, I saw the word coming up and I was like, Oh God. And I kind of just froze up for a second, but I want everyone to know, uh, your stance is you don't hate book talk, right? This is you're okay like with us book. as a a little internet I subculture. I I like book talk. <laughs> I like book talk. My only qualm with book talk is they don't seem to like a lot of nonfiction. Um, hey. I can't find as many nonfiction uh, book talkers. I know you talk about nonfiction. I've been saying the same thing, really. But, you know, um, well, and that's kind of yeah. like I mean, going back a little bit, but like that's it's also been like the weirdest thing is like 
how subdivided influence is anymore is like within even the book talk space, some people know me, some people don't. And within like the wider culture, no one knows who I am. Like I'm not like a, you know, celebrity, but it's also weird because like I get recognized in public and it's like (laughs) this weird thing where like, I I think there's, I, I think maybe how we define terms, like, I mean, influencer is the word, but like, celebrity dealist celebrity to like there's just this whole scale of like what people are experiencing now is so different than what people experienced in the 80s like it's just a wild phenomenon well we're so much more interconnected now and I mean fame and online attention it's a commodity and Mm -hmm. so everyone sort of has differing amounts of it and you can have some of it and it could go away too and it's just like it's this fluid system, whereas it used to be this really stratified environment yeah. where it was like normal people, which is 99.9% of people, and then like the 1% of famous people. And there was this clear delineation between that. And the period of time that my book covers, which is really kind of the turn of the millennium to now, I think that whole concept of fame has shifted. I mean, you had reality TV lowering people's yeah. sort of changing on people's understanding of what, you know, who's a television star. And then of course you had the internet, which is just turned into a giant fame machine. Um, and so, yeah, we have the influencer world. Well, and I think one of the, like the hardest things to grasp of the, you know, of the internet age is the compensation, which you get a lot into your book, especially with Vine, um, with Vine kind of just folding and i would love for you to kind of like tell a little bit of the story of like how vine folded because when it comes to like being compensated on the internet or being compensated i guess for your influence for your fame vine is like a an amazing case study of just everything going wrong in that way <laughs> yeah vine oh oh my gosh i mean i wish tech founders would sort of learn some lessons from vine but i see elon making all the exact same <laughs> mistakes like speed running them. Um, Vine, you know, Vine had this weird relationship with its creators where we had a very hostile relationship with its content creators on it. And they didn't like these people that were using the app to amass fans. Um, the founders had a very specific idea of what they wanted the app to be, which was this sort of like artsy um, place where people would share kind of da- daily moments from their lives. And they didn't like these like teenagers, you know, making skits and doing funny jokes on each other. And so... Um, they, yeah, they kind of antagonized their biggest content creators, refused to pay them. And then when all those content creators left and became the biggest thing on YouTube, they, you know, Vine cratered and ultimately shut down. Something I've been kind of thinking about, especially with like talking about Vine, because a lot of what made Vine, because I mean, it was six second videos. So a lot of what made Vine popular and then I think transitioned into especially the early forms of YouTube fame were like the prank topics or, you know, prank videos. Like those were so, so popular. And yes. they're so watchable. So algorithmically, it makes sense that these things just skyrocket into everyone's feed. Um, but there's there's definitely content, I would say, that's just like, it's really just not good for people. And I like I don't want to become like puritanical and be like, we can't have this on the internet. But what the algorithms do... To great success for some people, but to great harm in in more terms is like they they just push whatever is being watched. And that's, I don't know, like it's not really a good thing. And that's something like I've had to, I don't know, 
like playing a role in the social internet. Like it's like, it's something I think about a lot and I don't, I don't know where kind of you come out on, on this kind of thing. Cause it's, I don't know. It's, it's hard to really talk about without seeming like so drastic in your beliefs, if you know what I mean. Oh, totally. No, I know. I think it's, it's fraught. I mean, that prank era of YouTube was, was really dark and you had people like staging fake acid attacks or like, you know, I talked about the family channel, Daddy 5 that literally lost custody of their ch- kids because they were just pre- like playing these really horrible pranks on their own children for YouTube views. And I mean, all of that is, is dark. I agree. I, I think the problem is, is that like we have these social platforms that are built on advertising mm-hmm. um, and their business models are built on advertising. And so they need to keep people watching and they need to maximize views. And I talk a lot sort of about that, the consequences of views culture, especially in the second half of the 2010s, um, where I think things got really out of control. I do think it's improved somewhat um, more recently, just because honestly, people are spending more time on TikTok, but TikTok is also views culture and people are incentivized to be outrageous. Um, I think it's less about the pranks because physical harm is less of a thing, but but now people, you know, people get very outrageous with their rhetoric and mm-hmm. I don't necessarily think the platforms should be censoring any of that because they usually do such a bad job of it. But I do think that like we should, there are certain things that we should just not reward with our attention. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's, it's kind of one of those things that like, uh, I've been kind of looking into this kind of idea. There's several European countries. There's a couple African countries and a couple Asian countries that now have like a uh, ministry of culture role in their like, in their government, which this, these are kind of people that kind of oversee like the educational forms of how we talk about and process culture. And it's like, wow, I really, I really could see something like that kind of being beneficial along with like our department of education for people like better understanding what the internet is and what it does and how you just, even as simple as like how things show up on our, our internet or our social feeds, like, cause it is just a wild thing. I think that we kind of take for granted in some sense that we are just inundated with everything that we could possibly think of. And some of it's not great, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. Oh, definitely. I would love to see a lot more sort of accountability and discussion of that, you know, those things. Unfortunately, what we get is a bunch of people in Congress falling for made up TikTok trends and yeah. sowing moral panic about things that don't exist. So, well, if there's anything that we as a American culture are great at, uh, it's it's moral panics. I mean, we just yeah. every every five years we've got a new one, and they are powerful rhetorical devices. And yeah, I think we're gonna we'll obviously like keep having them. Like, and it seems like TikTok is gonna play a big role in that. You know, at least going ahead in the future. Um, there is this kind of interesting trend. There's so many like, uh, I wouldn't even call them like secondary stories to your book. I mean, obviously, there's just like the undeserved or like the kind of overlooked role that women played, especially in the early internet, which I th- I thought was incredibly fascinating. But there's also like the trend of, you know, of how the internet transitions from text-based to video-based. Like there's so many little trend, like trend lines or through lines to your book. Um, and you said this book was originally <laughs> twice as long. Were there other things that you really wanted to pull from into this book that just like never, it you know, didn't make the, you know, the final cut of it? Yeah. I mean, a bunch, I spoke extensively to Ingrid Nielsen. I don't know if you know who she is, but she was at one time, one of the biggest beauty vloggers on the planet. 
Um, and she had one of the first viral coming out videos in the mid 2010s. Mm. And she talked so much about the way her life has changed and kind of like, I mean, it, the internet just sort of eviscerated her. And it, I thought, I, I wish her story could have been included. I couldn't include as much of it because um, the timelines were like, it was just hard to kind of weave everything together and make it sound coherent because I'm covering like, 12 different platforms and all, and then also like things like MCNs and the talent agencies and then the content creators. And so like making it all kind of like flow was hard. Um, but yeah, there was a bunch of like creators like her that were these like huge creators from almost generally the past that like I thought had really interesting reflections on the internet. And I, I'm hoping to do something with them outside of the book in some way, because that's, their stories are so interesting. And I think they have a lot of like kind of insights into what fame and internet fame can kind of, due to your life. I don't want to like make any assumptions, but I have to think that that was probably one of the most interesting parts of doing your research where we're talking to the people that have kind of gone offline, you know, like people talking to people that either through bitterness or some, you know, they've enlightened themselves enough to realize they don't need fame or they don't need the social clout. And they just, they have left those spaces. What were those kind of conversations I mean, they probably could have been really depressing or they probably could have been, you know, maybe some people are really joyful about logging off. Like, I don't know. What was kind of those conversations like for you? Yeah. I mean, some people are very well adjusted and happy. I mean, like Ingrid has a candle company now and she seems to be thriving. Um, some people, it was very sad and they mm -hmm. kind of left and they they have regrets and, um, you know, they didn't use their money as well as they should have. I think it's very hard, you know when you get a lot of fame and attention and money when you're young, you know, you don't always, you're not always the most responsible with it. And then, you know, you can look back and have a lot of regrets, but um, I mean, overall, I just, it was just interesting to talk to these people because they, I think none of them regretted necessarily like what they did because they got so much out of it. But I do think that like, it just is a reminder of how ephemeral online fame specifically is and how grueling it is and how, hard it is to just, I mean, you're not taken seriously, you're attacked. It's just, it's a tough, tough business. Yeah. And, um, it also seems like the, the 15 minute of fame kind of thing that we, like, we all heard about this like concept, uh, growing up. And, um, yeah. I can't remember his name. He's, he's like a well-known author, but he wrote, um, so you've been publicly shamed. Yes. Um, and it talks about the, the 15 minutes of fame, especially in like someone being called out for like a derisive reason of, of like, you know, this was kind of before canceling kind of became the moniker for this, this idea. And the 15 minutes of fame really felt like, oh, wow. Like it's, it's kind of a scary thing, but that we all kind of like grasped in some sense, but now it's like, no, the, the, the whole concept is shaken because it, it's like the 15 minutes of fame can come up and then it can go away and then it can come back again. I mean, like yeah. kind of in the introduction, we said you were like, you've been number one topic trending on Twitter before. And it's been multiple times. Like it's, it's not just, and like, I think in the same way, like I've had a video do a million views and then I'll go six months and then I'll randomly have a million, you know, another million view video. And so it's just this constant like ebb and flow of what is being talked about online. Yeah, definitely. And like the minute you leave the conversation, like, I think it can be really hard for people like when mm -hmm. they, you know, when they um, 
like when they get used to that attention or they get used to those views, like, you know how it is on TikTok. It's like, you kind of know generally like how many views you're going to get and then you'd start getting less. And then you start being like, wait a minute, you know, like what's going on? Like it can really mess with your head. It absolutely does. Because I think like it's, it becomes so internalized about like my value on the internet. Like when I, I'm doing really well and all my videos are doing 50,000 views. I'm like, wow, I'm like good at being a book talker. I'm good at reviewing books. And then I go through a drought where I'm struggling to get 5,000 views and it's like, I suck. Like I, I'm the bad person. Like I'm the one making terrible content. And it's like, it becomes so, I think, psychologically damaging to have these really unexplainable things just algorithmically happen to you. Yes, absolutely. Very psychologically damaging. <laughs> I think it's hard. It's just hard for anyone to deal with and no one is prepared for it and you don't really get it until you go through it yourself. Yeah. Was there any, is there any part of you that is, I I don't know, nostalgia is a really funny thing because it, it, you know, it often doesn't really like totally realize what the past was, but is there any part of you that is kind of just nostalgic for the earliest social medias or, or kind of even almost pre, you know, Facebook era where, I mean, I remember, I remember being in like church camp and we had a Christian social media site that was like for for people that went to church camp. I mean it was like there were probably like 500 people on this website total and we had you know like it's just these super niche places that no one I can't even remember the name of it anymore but like he wrote kind of about the whole social internet history is there any part of it that you're like kind of nostalgic for like you think like oh maybe things might be a little bit better if we brought you know this kind of thing back a little bit Oh my gosh, Nathan, I'm so nostalgic for so much of it. I mean, I really, I really miss, I I think the one thing that I loved about blogging and I started as a blogger, I never studied journalism or went into, you know, I got into this because I got popular on the internet um, as a blogger. And, um, you know, I just, like, I miss the phase of the internet when not every single metric was public Mm. and when these platforms were less profit driven like there really wasn't I mean blogging it's like there were all these different blogging platforms but it was very like open and collaborative and like there wasn't like one blogging platform that really dominated there was like a several of them and so it's just like I just I yeah I would love to live in a less profit driven Mm -hmm. social media ecosystem well I I've kind of tried to think about that reading your book. I've been reading other books recently about like the internet. I've read some stuff by Cory Doctorow, who is a great yes, I love him. Uh, tech journalist. Yeah. I don't know if that would be like the technical title um, author as well, but um, it really like if you could conceive of the social internet without just like the hyper-capitalist society, it's a like fascinating thing because it's so hard to displace. I mean, it it changes everything. Like it's it really is. It's just a weird phenomenon that like if we just thought of the internet differently, it would change kind of everything, it seems like. Yeah, yeah. I think also, like, a lot of young people, their only understanding of the social internet is the, like, Facebook, Twitter, Google, like, Instagram, YouTube era. And they don't remember those earlier days when it was, like, this, like, bastion of creativity. and. Oh, you had, like, um, 45 websites that you visited regularly. And now I flip through, like, four apps on my phone and then... That's it. That's every and everything single day. Looks, 
Yeah. And everything looks the same too. (laughs) Like everything's standardized. Like there was so much more fun customization, not just on like MySpace, but blogs. But like there was just, there was so much more like expression and creativity in the way that you could kind of like present yourself online. Whereas now it's very much like, here's my TikTok profile. Here's my Instagram profile. And by the way, it looks like everyone else's Instagram profile. You know, there's no like room for, yeah. I do have to tell you a a part in your book that I was slightly disappointed with because you get into uh, the the phenomenon of chocolate rain back in the day and kind of that 15 minutes of fame story. Uh, And and the creator like continued on, but it was really like a spark, you know, that moment. Uh, But you never got into llamas with hats. And I was, <laughs> I was just astounded that, you know, there was, there was very little written on those original, like, flash video cartoon things. Because I have, I have an undue respect for those early stages of horrible internet videos. <laughs> I love, yes, I know. You know what? Llamas with hats is so hilarious. I, there were so many early viral videos that I wish I could have, like, <laughs> shouted out. Another part that got cut, by the way, Nathan, um, when I was writing about this, I had a whole chapter on, um web series because there was this like weird time where it was like pre-youtube but people were making these like web series and actually myspace had myspace tv which was doing a lot of early deals like that's why uta uta started their digital department to sign myspace stars but also to do these like web series things Mm. and um i think they played such an important role in the early internet too but i couldn't there wasn't it was less like about content creators themselves and more about kind of these like interesting little early web shows and um, I don't know. I kind of llamas with hats was obviously a YouTube thing, but um, but I but yeah, I love that era. I could write a whole book on just like you know, going just like back. what would it be like two thousand seven to two thousand eight? Just just YouTube. Like I, I would read it. Yeah, you put it out. I'm gonna I'll pick it up immediately and start talking about it. <laughs> um, there is kind of I think there's also um, there's this kind of idea that we've had, especially like the. I don't know. The label of it has been brought into culture because of the 2008 financial crisis, which I also have to think played a huge role in like how the internet has been, you know, progressed in the like <laughs> the last 12 years or 15 years. But um, there's also, in some sense, these websites are too big to fail is kind of how we describe them. And yet right now we could potentially be witnessing two websites failing, both with Twitter who knows what they're doing recently? They just released that they might be charging people like $1 a month. So, or $1 a year to access the platform to even just yeah. tweet or something like, I, I don't know. Maybe this is not like a comfortable, like guesswork for you um, <laughs> doing just all the internet things that you do. But like, do you think Twitter is too big to fail or is it, you know, like we could be witnessing something massive happening with just a complete exodus from the platform. Yeah, I think Twitter is going to fail because Elon is alienating <laughs> like every user possible. Um, I think it'll be kept alive through the 2024 election because the political people are so addicted to it. It's an inherently political yeah. platform. Um, but but it's, I mean, it's already less and less culturally relevant. I mean, all the big celebrities are pretty much off of it. Everything is happening on TikTok. I mean, TikTok is where like pop culture narratives emerge. It's where people go to like, discuss, you know, the important issues like TikTok is, or Twitter is mostly just like a lot of misinformation now and weird political accounts. And like, it's just like not where things are happening. It's Mm. stuff that I've seen on TikTok like days ago. Mm. Um, And just kind of, yeah. So I don't, I don't see it. 
lasting long-term, but I think it could just go along. I mean, look, Tumblr is still around and <laughs> right. it's not necessarily like relevant in the way that it was. Right. But it's still around. I think Twitter will be around because Elon has the money to keep it going forever. But it's so I funny it's- when you got into, you kind of have like a little chapter on Tumblr. And when you got into Tumblr, it was the only part of the book that I was reading that I was like, I don't, I don't really know what's happening right now. I mean, like I understood <laughs> the language that you were using and stuff. Like I, I got what you were saying, but it's the one like big online thing that I never got into. And so it's been so wild to see people talking about Tumblr again. And I'm like, I I have no memory for I have no no recollection of how this site works or what it is. And I did create an account on it recently and I could not understand it. I was like, I am oh I'm 30. I'm too old for this. I can't like I can't do Nathan, it. Nathan, no. Oh my god, <laughs> Tumblr. Well, I'm from Tumblr. Tumblr is that where you kind everything. of got your your Yes, that's where my followers were. <laughs> Um, I tried to be a book Tumblr person because I worked at a bookstore. I still have a Tumblr up that is a fan Tumblr for E.B. White, my favorite author. (laughs) Um, Yeah, yeah. Tumblr, I mean, Tumblr played such a fascinating role in the book industry, too. I mentioned this in the book, but like it got a lot of early Internet creators book deals. And that was how a lot of early Mm. content creators monetized was through these publishing deals through Tumblr. That is so fascinating. I actually kind of want to stay on this topic of like the books and social media because I well, obviously it hits home for me, but um, yeah. How, so how did, how did your like rise to kind of fame happen? Like it, you, you were a, you were a fiction Tumblr user or nonfiction? Or what were you into? Like, what were you <laughs> yeah, writing about that I you kind into- of shot up there? I, well, so I, I was, oh my God, it was so embarrassing. And I've spent <laughs> a lot of time scrubbing this off the internet. Um, so I worked at this bookstore called Housing Works and it's, it was a used bookstore in down in Soho. And, um, I got very into like literary Tumblr, I guess you could mm. call it like Paris review followed me back. And I was like, very like, Oh, I'm a, like going to be like a literary critic. I was mostly reading fiction at the time. Cause that's what I always preferred to read, um, before I was in journalism. Now I read kind of a mix of everything, but, um, it was, I was reblogging a lot of like honestly, just like bookstore porn, like, you know, those really beautiful (laughs) libraries and like shit like that. It was like very like aesthetic. And I don't think that the stuff that I was writing was very smart. I wrote some long thing about like, um, oh God, I can't remember the name of the book now. I I don't know. It's embarrassing, but, uh, but I was a fiction. I I wrote about fiction books and I reblogged a lot of like corny book. That's so cool. I mean, someday, Someday, maybe I can also write a weird, you know, just a really compellingly <laughs> funny, you know, book about a uh, history of something. You know, mine mine might tend to be, you know, something Midwestern. I'm, I'm way too Midwestern to write about the cultural internet. Maybe I'll just write about, like, I don't know, the history of, like, the dark, seedy underground of corn maze, you know? Oh, yeah. I think, yeah, there might be a market <laughs> out there for that. You know, I'm not going to inspect that right now, but maybe someday. Um, Taylor, thank you so much for hanging out with me. This has been so much fun. I do want to know kind of what is what are some books that you've been loving? What are some books that you, you like enjoyed during the research process or just things that you've been enjoying on the side? I'd just love to know what you're reading. Okay, so Kashmir's Hill, uh, Kashmir Hill, I used to work with her at the New York Times. Um, she has a new book out that is so crazy. It's called Your Face Belongs to Us. It's a great title. It's all about facial recognition and AI. And I'm a tech reporter, but like I read this book and I was just like, this is crazy. Like this is all happening. Like this is crazy. And um, yeah, it's really fascinating and horrifying. And um, she's a, just a phenomenal reporter and journalist. So I have to have to shout that, shout that book out. 
I will check that out. That sounds super interesting. And definitely with the kick of internet style books that I've been reading recently, I think that would like fit perfectly into it. Taylor, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, where can people find you online? I mean, it's it's everywhere, right? Yeah, well, I'm at Taylor Lorenz on TikTok, YouTube. Follow me at Taylor Lorenz everywhere except Twitter. That one I'm not. You're, just, you're like, yeah, you kind of got over it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Taylor, so much for coming on. Thanks, everyone, for listening to another week of Schizophrenic Reads, the podcast. You can support this podcast on patreon.com slash schizoreads. And also, this podcast was edited by Tone Support. Check out those in the description below. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll be back next week. Mm-hmm.